Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennart, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. In her tome-like book, Napa Valley Then and Now, Kelly White writes, Randy Dunn believes in two things above all others, the primacy of hillside fruit and low alcohol levels. In these days of blockbuster Napa cabs that skyrocket above 15% alcohol, this belief in low alcohol is refreshing. Dunn believes that high alcohol levels hide terroir and hinders a wine's ability to pair with food. Today, Mike Dunn, Randy's son, makes the wine at Dunn. Mike maintains Randy's vision for Dunn Cabernet, and we should all be thankful for that. He's also started his own project called Retro, where he's making some delicious petite Syrah. I sat down with Mike to talk about what it's like to foster the vision of his dad and to learn about his new project. This episode of The Honest Pour is sponsored in part by Fooditor.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Fooditor.com. Hi, welcome to The Honest Pour. I'm John Leonard. Joining me today is Mike Dunn of Dunn & Retro. Welcome to the show. Thank you. A lot of people, you know, moved to Napa Valley to start making wine. Mm -hmm. That's not not the way you went. Tell me about it. (laughs) Well, um... I guess in a sense we did move, but my dad was making wine for Camus and commuting from a small town outside of Davis. And he found a small vineyard for sale in the town of Anglin and decided to buy it. Now, Anglin's up on Howell Mountain. On Howell Mountain, yeah. So it was before it was called Howell Mountain, before it was an AVA. You know, the town's Anglin. And Mm -hmm. uh, this vineyard was planted in 72 he purchased it in 77, 78, and then we made, uh, he made our first wine in 79, Dunn Vineyards. 79 is when it started. First huh? vintage, and there was a little bit of 78 fruit in there. He found this, um, our winery structure now, he found this for sale and got Camus to buy it. So we were moved in as the caretakers in this house. Oh, no kidding. And so the commute went from an hour plus to 25 minutes, and uh, Camus... Uh, ripped out the old walnut orchard that was here, walnuts and prunes, which were prevalent in the Napa Valley, and then decided that this was too remote for them or that there wasn't enough water. I don't know exactly the reasons, uh, but for frost protection in this vineyard site, and decided to sell. So my dad and mom came up with money from their parents, and we split this property in half, and we bought the part with the homes on it and sold off the, the back acreage. And uh, then ultimately was able to, we were able to buy that back and then plant vineyards here. But most of our vineyards are actually above us on the hillside above us, so. And the fruit for your wines, does it all come from these vineyards or are you purchasing some? We actually purchase fruit for our Napa bottling. So we make the Napa, which is about a third of our production and our Howe Mountain, which is our flagship. And that's about two thirds production historically. Uh, Napa has been anywhere from no purchased fruit, just Howell Mountain fruit that didn't make the cut from our vineyards or purchased Howell Mountain fruit. Mm-hmm. It gets kind of confusing. Also years, uh, 15, 20% Napa fruit purchased from different areas that changed over time. And then recently from 12 forward, we've been buying from the same two sources in Coombsville for our Napa blend. Oh, all the way south of Coombsville, huh? And that's about 50% of the blend now. So we're consciously making a, a softer Napa wine, not by cellar techniques, but fruit source. Sure. Um, also, the fruit up here is a lot more expensive to buy than, yeah. than Coombsville. For sure, for um, sure. And Coombsville, we really like the area. But and some really nice fruit coming out of Coombsville, even though it's 
not recognized as being terribly expensive or right. still some beautiful stuff going the newest on. ABA it's cooler than certain valley floor sites uh, it's somewhat elevated so uh, berries aren't quite as big as some of the valley floor mm -hmm. sites that we purchase from um, we like small berries now here we're pretty high up though we're 1400 feet yeah, we're about 18, 1900. 18 or 19. Wow, we're way up there. Right? So uh, some of our vineyards are about 21. And the drive up, I felt my ears oh, pop yeah. a couple of times yeah. for sure. Everyone, all my friends tease me about coming off the hill because I don't, I don't leave here very often. But, <laughs> but yeah, my ears crack a couple times on the way down. Um, but actually, this area was defined by my dad and, and uh, several other people in 1980, 81, I believe. And it's basically 1,400 feet and above. And it's where the fog line sits in the summer. Okay. So the Napa Valley itself will will draw in that coastal fog, cools down dramatically at night, and then that dissipates during the day and gets hot. How Mountain in the summer is warm in the morning. It's above the fog. Right. And then in the afternoon, generally around one, uh, a breeze kicks in and we don't get those hot temperatures. So I started back in '99, and by 2002, harvest. I've had four years. I kind of like, I refer to 2002 as my baby. And, but yet I have to emphasize that, you know, my dad still decides when we pick. Even though I help him with that, <laughs> um, he's still there. I mean, he's, he's not going anywhere. He's 71. He's only 20 years older yeah. than me. He had both hips replaced several harvests ago, so he couldn't help me out on, on the crush. Sure, pack. sure. Um, I hire people now to help me out. I used to be too macho to hire anybody to help me out, but I'm, I got wise when we had our three t uh, tons per acre vintage. When all of a sudden <laughs> what I, are we going to do? I had way more barrels than I knew what to do with. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, he's, he's actively involved and he has a, a palate that you know, is very um, consistent and distinctive. And he wants, like, he jokes, but it's like his job security. Like, he doesn't want me to take over 100% of it operations. It seems that Randy and you both from hearing you talk, approach wine very much from a farming perspective. That's fair. That's very yeah. fair. Yeah. How does that translate into the wine? Well, I mean, uh, the reputation of Dunn for the beginning was austere, tannic, hard as nails, but my God, give it 30, 40 right. years and you're, you know, you're in for a treat. That was in the 80s, you know. That, Done was this very, you know, for me when I started out in, in, in wine, Napa Cabernet was all, it was it. It was, and it was 80s Napa Cab. It was a little green, it was a little rough. It wasn't these big, plush, velvety things they are today. Absolutely. And Done was sort of this wine that was, especially for me getting into wine as a young college student, back then, it was very expensive for Napa Cabernet. And Hmm. While maybe yeah. I mean looking at it from a college student perspective, sure, sure. you know my the first bottle of wine I ever bought Napa Cabernet I think I paid twenty one dollars a bottle and this was like a lot of money for me to spend on a bottle of wine. Yeah, and you know I think Dunn was probably in the forties right. price wise then, which right. was pretty expensive. That's, that's an interesting perspective because <laughs> but as as yeah. as time goes by, that quality of Dunn stays the same. The 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 the, uh, the point of it being something to aspire to has stayed the same, yet the price hasn't increased like Napa Cabernet has increased. It's Today, I would argue, it's a great, val terrific value if you can get your hands on it. Exactly what I was going to say. Um, what's interesting is when Randy first released Done 79, so that would be in 81, we're, th we're 32 months in barrel. Wow. Yeah. 
And uh, so this is just this is that what it takes to take that kind of rough edge off that mountain fruit? Right. So back to the farming and anal- farmers analogy, we don't fine our, our fruit. We you know we do nothing to us to tame those tannins, though he does pick based on flavor and tannin softening. He doesn't like high alcohol and any residual sugar in his wines. Right. Um, so classic French wines or old school California when they were picked at 22, 23. Exactly, right. like where it should be. Right, or some would argue. <laughs> well, that's uh, pyrazines. And, and you know, you can get it a huge talks about farming, how farming has become much more sophisticated. And I want to say, for the record, we are not sophisticated farmers. I mean, we've gotten better. <laughs> but, you know, we don't have drones over the vineyard. And it's more of seat of the pants kind of mm-hmm. thing. And, um, you know, he was mentored by uh, Charlie Wagner. And Charlie Wagner was a farmer. Pretty good place uh, to start, right? <laughs> and he was a, a straight shooter and, a, you know, just like a father figure to my dad. And um, But, yeah, to backtrack, so 1250 when we started, we're now our official release is 125. So there's uh, 40 years coming up. Wow. Um, and yes, you, you can name several wines that are above 300 a bottle. Yeah, right. Um, possibly a lot more of it produced. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember Randy saying something like 20 bucks was unheard of, right, for a bottle of wine. And I think it was uh, Diamond Creek that was 20 bucks first. And I think Diamond Creek was 100 bucks first before anyone. And they were all, yeah, that's yeah, right. crazy. For but sure. yeah, Diamond Creek $100. Is, is a great value too. I mean, I just got to visit them this year. And um, uh, the winemaker's a neighbor of mine. And really down home, cool spot. And, you know, maybe not cutting edge winemaking like we aren't cutting edge winemaking. But, man. But again, at Diamond Creek, it's, especially if you started out in wine... Like in the 80s when I started out, Diamond Creek was right there with Dunn is that I would aspire to have some of those bottles of wine. And, you know, it's Randy basically never wanting to raise his prices that much because he's basically cheap himself. Like none of us want to spend more than 100 bucks a bottle. Right, right. Yeah. How are you going to sell that? Right. So uh, he he admits that he he shot himself in the foot because uh, he's tried to play some of this... um, he has successfully done it a few times, but he's tried to keep land from being developed. And you need deep pockets. And so he's brought in other folks, but if he had been charging 125 bucks a bottle 10 years ago, you know, of course you pay more taxes. Yeah. But, um, you know, we have stacks of letters that have thanked Randy for not raising his prices over the years. Um, unfortunately, there's some negatives to that too. I mean, it's, it's back to retail. Right, if you're too cheap, people look at it and say, like, "What's, what's up? Why is it so you cheap?" Know? And that just drives everyone nuts. Sure, but, but but the reason why I think we were never really expensive is we didn't use traditional uh, distributor systems. We we sold a lot direct, mm-hmm. and which is the way it came to be today. So you really were forefront on that. Well, and we're doing less direct than we used to because basically there's 700 Napa Valley brands now. Wow. And we spend That's no crazy. time on the road. We, you know, we really... Good for you. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's also another issue where people actually forget about you. Oh, right? Enough. Unless you're, like, for a long time, we didn't get any reviews. We weren't giving anyone wines. And so you get out of the, the younger crowd, the upcoming sure. people, you get out from the, under their radar there. Yeah. So there's a, there's a fine line. I and mean, we've done some more traveling and we've gotten some, you know, outstanding reviews, thank God. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And it's not because the wines are opulent and ready to drink now. It's because they've stuck to a, a pretty tried and true principle that my dad's established. I've been accused of softening the, the wines and making them more approachable, and I fully uh, accept that. Okay. But I would argue that it's been barrel management and cleanliness. In other words, Brett taming and polishing of those astringent tannins with barrel selection. I don't mind selection. a little breadiness in my wine. Oh, that's that's a taste. That's a taste. Do. I mean, the winemakers get pretty nerdy about, yeah, uh, about oh, yeah, that. Yeah, for but, sure. Uh, yeah. Um, but, you know, simply, uh, Randy has wears many hats, and he was not in the cellar. And I, when I was hired, I got into the cellar, and I approached issues, and we battled over certain issues in the cellar. And ultimately, I'm just as stubborn as he is. Uh, might be more sensitive, <laughs> but you know, sulfur levels increased, cleanliness increased. Um, we remo- we uh, to his credit, I mean, he he didn't sterile filter for a couple years after my sister passed away, mm-hmm. and he'd always sterile filtered before then. And so <laughs> we had bought some bulk wine in '98 that had a little different strain of botanomyces, and we had a bloom in '98. Mm-hmm. That wine today is resolved and it's lovely. Not everyone loves it, but some people just crave it. Um, it's not very marketable initially when you have a Brett balloon. Right, right. Um, People so freak out. From 2001 forward, sterile filtered again, and um, we had a, you know, people are always going to imagine a little bit of Brett. I, I maintain a pretty tight rein on it, but it will never be removed. And once again, it is part of a, I mean, this is going to get hate mail, but it is somewhat stylistic. The Brett is Brett no matter where you make the wine. It's still that same character, Yep. it's still also associated with it. There's a savory quality to it. For sure. Right, and if For you're sure. talking about opulent, fruit-forward, unctuous, jammy, this is... This is not that, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's done. And people know done. You've also started your own project. Tell me about it. So, um, I, I said earlier that 2002 was kind of where I was I was gathering up some, some energy and going, okay, we need to do this. and that with done and I thought you know I'd like to we, we bought an old vineyard backtracking we bought a Park Muscatine vineyard which Ridge used to buy fruit from in the 80s actually even earlier than the 80s and they made a field blend out of Zin with with about 25% Petite so that Petite with well, the Zin was there when we bought it in 92 I think and Randy sold that fruit to Jerry Seps for a couple years just a handshake deal and got some Hellmont fruit but that vineyard was so diseased and so old that he pulled it, mm-hmm. and we put cab in. But the petite had been replanted in 80, and so he sold that fruit to various folks, like uh, Stagsley bought some, and uh, Deer Park Winery back in the day, and uh, uh, Ray Corson, and uh, there's a couple others. But uh, So ultimately, over the years, it got to where Ray was the only one buying the fruit, and uh, it's a vineyard that I used to hike into and sneak around when I was a kid, and it just it's just... It's a beautiful spot, and it's it's a real rocky kind of shady exposure um, down in this valley, and uh, I just loved uh, loved the whole idea about it. I used to rack, oh, I still rack the wines, but I would taste the petite when I'd rack them, and it's it's a hard tannic varietal, but something intriguing about the fruit it's different you know and so i said hey uh, i want to buy that fruit from you and i want to make my own wine and he said all right all right yeah, yeah yeah so ray corson comes around at harvest 2002 and said yeah randy i'll be picking tomorrow or the next day and i'm like no no ray i'm i'm, I'm buying the fruit this year and my dad's like no no i'm selling to ray this year now dunn is 
traditionally, oh, no, he's has been, correct me if I'm wrong, 100% Cabernet, yeah? Correct. So what were you doing with the Petite? So he would sell most of the fruit, but he'd make a barrel for his own okay. consumption, yeah, right? Because right. he loves Petite, too. So i never forget, we're in the bar, and I said, God damn it, I want to buy this fruit. Is not charity, you know? And he said to me, all right, all right, but, you know, it's going to be hard to sell. And I'm like, look, I came out of sales. I had a bike shop. I know what you sell, Well, you know, it is hard to sell. He's damn right. I mean, it's a pain in the ass. Sure. And it doesn't get the, the price that you would get for For cab, right. Or, I mean, people complain that Syrah's hard to sell. I'd argue Syrah's easier to sell than Petit. Petit, for sure. Um, a matter of fact, I planted some Syrah at my house because it's, it, you know, it's, it's a more approachable wine earlier on. Anyway. He's, so in 2003, I purchased the fruit, and boy, making wine with your own money involved is a whole different uh, <laughs> experience. And, uh, you know, you start going, well, that was $12,000 in fruit, and the barrels were thousands each. Yeah. And, and, you know, I had all these grandiose ideas. I'm going to cold soak it, I'm going to macerate it, I'm going to do this, and that, you know, because, you know, I had this envy where, you know, other people making their wines and I, I have to I'm stuck making my or our wines the way my dad wants them made right so is retro just petite Syrah so retro used to be just petite Syrah and now um, there's a little Syrah in the program a little Zinfandel alright um, cool the old vineyard the DNA was tested when we gifted the Budwood to Outpost Carol Meredith found that the petite Syrah the Durif or Durif also had the Pelursan or Pellersan in there, which is the mother. So the the cross is Pellersan and Syrah forming Petit. Huh. So I have Pellersan. And it took me years to figure out which vines were Pellersan. And in hindsight, it was ridiculous, but it was basically my dad saying, all the Pellersans in this one corner, and I could never distinguish it. Well, actually, it was spread out through this one, a couple sections. And when I replanted that three and a half acre 1980 planting at Park Muscatine. I planted an acre over here. Oh, wow. And realized, you know, I pruned both of them every year and realized, what? Okay, these vines are, one of these vines is not like the other. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's distinct differences. So in 2015, I picked them separately. I marked all the vines, picked them separately. The Pellersans ripe a month later than the Petit Syrah. A month later. A month later. Great. Very high acids. It's just noticeable, night and day. It definitely was a part of the petite, though, up here. Because petites tend to be higher pH, mm -hmm. maybe flabbier wines in, in warm regions. So that Pelursin or Pelursin was, was giving it some acidity. So I separated those two, and I fermented them, and I kept them separate and to taste the differences. In 16, I picked them separately, and I made a rosé out of the Pelursin. Oh, how cool. And put the skins into petite. Nice. And so that's what we're doing. But I've also incorporated some zin. And then I planted some Syrah at my house, uh, about an acre. And so that old vineyard was, was torn out. The 1980 vineyard was torn out after the 15 vintage. So, uh, and then we planted that to cab. So basically I'm going to have three to four tons of Petit and three to four tons of Syrah. And then I got a little Zin here and there to blend. So what we've established is a, a Petit Syrah blend called Elevation which is going to become more prominent on the label. Mm -hmm. And that is strictly a marketing <laughs> ploy because people don't know Petit Right, for sure. And 
people that do know pizzerias have distinctive uh, likes and dislikes. So Lodi Petites are much different than Mendocino. And, you know, we're probably somewhere in between. Okay. Um, when I originally started Retro, I wanted to buy just old vine, head train, grapes from all over. But my day job got in the way of me driving around and tasting the fruit. Finding them, yeah. And I got burned a couple times buying fruit. Uh, so there was no way I was going to buy fruit without actually going out in the vineyard and tasting it. Right. And testing it. So... How much are you producing on so, the retro label? Uh, so we do a Napa and a Howl, just like done, because I was buying some fruit out of Pope Valley, which is considered Napa, mm-hmm. because I had such a topsy-turny uh, output in that, that crop from that old vineyard. So that's why I replanted the younger vineyard to get a more dis- uh, consistent crop. And then I eventually phased out the Napa. But at the peak, we are about 1,000 combined. eight to 900 to 1,000 co- uh, cases <laughs> combined. It'll drop back down to... Four or five, and that way it's not a, this machine that has to be sold. You know, sure. Um, things change when you get to a thousand cases. I know this all sounds minuscule when you compare, you know, to some of the stuff. Yeah. But those wines, my wines are forty-five and thirty-five dollars retail. Okay, so you, that was my next question. Right, so and, and petites sell well at eighteen, twenty-two. Yeah. Yeah. There are rare exceptions. I think Turley's ninety bucks for their top of the line petite, and it's but you got that name on the label, and it's direct to consumer, right? And we're not calling this done petites or right, right? Which would be another marketing ploy because it is, right? But um, anyway. where'd the name come from? Believe it or not, we sat around one night with a bunch of friends, and we like we got to come up with a name. It's the hardest part, right? <laughs> and uh, I was a f- I liked old cars. Uh, I'm a child of the 70s right so i like 70s bmws mm-hmm. and somebody like yeah what about those uh dial phones that you actually went er, you know you know and that kind of anyway retro sellers we figured that's kind of got a it was kind of coming into the uh, literature where that word was being used too and we figured well if it doesn't pan out maybe we sell the name or something yeah but it, it really does kind of reflect about this old world way of making wine it's not, you know, it's, it's retrospective. It's a, you know, it's a field blend, old world kind of red wine. Cool. Yeah. And, you know, we have some fanatics that, that love it and there are people that hate it. <laughs> and a friend of mine told me, a winemaker told me, he's like, that's great. Polarizing wine is a good thing. Yeah, for sure. Right? Because the ones that don't love it, you got to right. put in audience is always going to love it. And you would argue the same with Dunn. It's polarizing. For sure. I mean, we, uh, what's interesting, I do, we do tours here. We, we can do 20 people a week. We have people here that do not like retro, love Dunn, vice versa. Some love both. Other people have come here being recommended and really don't like any of it. They don't get it. And, and maybe they just came from our neighbors, Outpost, which they absolutely loved. Awesome. You know, yeah. um, Should we take some wine? Absolutely. Let's do that. <laughs> All right. So, so where should we start? So we got a nice little lineup here of our most current uh, releases, 11, 12, and 13. Nice. And what I really love about this particular grouping is uh, 11 was a cool vintage, picked very late. Mm-hmm. We picked end of October to early November, five days was all we picked. Into November. November 2nd. That's crazy. So five days we were picked. 12, warm, ripe, voluptuous, even by Dunn's standard. 
13, kind of one of those vintages where you could do no wrong, but also very tannic, extracted, but long haul. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these are polarizing wines. And one of the, the you know, the reasons why Dunn is enjoyed by psalms and, and critics, I would say, is that we make the wines basically as, as similar as we can every year. There's no major changes going on. You're actually able to taste vintage characteristics. You know, keep in mind these are snapshots in time, five years. You know, everything's changing constantly. For sure. Right? But uh, I've been pouring wine since 99 and watched wines evolve over almost 20 years. You know, I have certain opinions about 11, for instance, what it's similar to in the past, 12. Like 12 to me is similar to 04. 11, 03. Really simple analogies, but um, for us here. And this is the 11, 11. Dunn Hall Mountain. Yeah, so more European. <laughs> hey, probably get in trouble for saying that, but you know, more pyrazines. Well, I'll tell you, 11 is a, is a year that... Polarizing. Was polarizing. Well, there's some and more I'm on, I'm on the positive side of that. Me too. I, well... Again, I, I love those kind of... We talked about the 80s-style Napa cabs. That was my thing. And 11 was kind of almost a throwback to that. Just It oh, couldn't I, help to, but to be... I'd much rather drink 11 over 12 all day long. Really? Floral. Really pretty. Yeah, and you know, red red fruits versus black or really ripe right. fruits are, are more desirable to me, uh, acidity. So, you know, 11, some people got really hammered uh, early on. I think in the valley floor, it was so cool that people removed leaves. Then they got sunburn, and then they got rain. Right. So they got mold. We don't remove leaves up here. We have sun. You know, sun up, sun down. We don't have fog like we talked about earlier. Right. So we can't remove the leaves that they right because right? everything burns otherwise, right? We also don't have big crop loads. So another vintage that this reminds me of is 05. Uh, according to friends that know better, 05 was overcropped and then it was not able to be completely ripened. We don't have big crop. Mm -hmm. 05, man, we had shot berries in 05 like you would believe in a harvest. And we don't have a sorting table, by the way. No? For your readers. We have, we have very primitive uh, equipment. Wow. Um, and I remember telling my dad, you know, it'd be nice to have a shaker for these and get rid of them. And he's like, nah, they'll just add complexity. And honestly, 05 is one of my favorites, too. But it's the red fruit spectrum, mm -hmm. i.e. acidity and floral characteristics. And also... Very floral. Also... The tannin and the acid is really well integrated. You get no, no, no one element is dominating um, this wine. It's beautiful now. Really happy with this. <laughs> mm -hmm. But but also was very frustrated with critics generally panning the vintage. And and I understand. Well, I'll tell you, <laughs> I was at a vintage retrospective tasting at Napa Cabernet, and it was 06, 01, 11, 12, 13. 06? 01. Oh, I'm sorry. 96. 96, 01. 01. Okay. 06, 11, 12, 13. Oh, wow. And consistently, the 11s were my favorite. There you go. Consistently. After everyone was just so down on the vintage. And you know what? No one's wrong, right? I mean, somebody comes up here and they like the 12, great. Buy a case. 
You don't like the 11? <laughs> it's okay. That's stunning. I mean, it's beautifully balanced, and it's not overtly Napa. No. A lot of Cabernets are, you put your nose in the glass, you go, oh, that's Napa Cabernet. Well, and then back to the sorting table and um, ripe, ripe, late pickings. Is uh, you could argue, and we do, that that leads to a homogenous style of, of cabs. And my dad definitely argues that the riper you pick, the less varietal characteristics you're gonna show. And you know, when he first got into winemaking, he said you you could tell a uh, cab was from Mount Veeder. You could tell it was from Atlas Peak. You could tell Howe Mountain. You could tell Oakville. But it's like now it's hard for him. You know they're. They're just not exhibiting those uh, those distinctive. What would you say is a characteristic Hall Mountain Cabernet? Well, there's a cassis character, you know, and blackberry, but not in the sense of an overly ripe like blackberry, but a brambly, you know. Um, there's a minerality, there's an earthiness, and I'm not talking about just Britannomyces earthiness. And Robert Parker once said, like crushed stone, mm -hmm. you know. Um, there's a, a, a wine critic that I, I just get a kick out of, uh, Swaff, he's on Instagram, but he, he termed, uh, petrichor, which is a, a term for like rain on asphalt. Yeah. That smell of the yeah. rain like, on the wow. sidewalk on a hot summer day. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that cool? I've never had heard that word before, but I've used that descriptor. Yeah. Well, there's a lot better descriptors than I come up with. I'm in the red, blacks, and blue fruits, you know? Yeah. I mean... <laughs> Every once in a while, something jumps out at me, but it's... Like the 11 to me has a smoke character, uh, a smokiness touch, from the touch, barrel yeah. that I really prefer, and I get that out of uh, burgundy barrels. Sometimes. I'm not getting that breadiness, though. Yeah. If, if it's there, it's so well integrated that it's just part of the overall experience of the wine. It'll rear end. its head up a little bit here and there, but we're talking about just below threshold levels. Um, never the bloom that we had in 98 and 2000. Okay, so the 12's nose, to me, isn't quite as expressive as no. the 11. It's a little more shy. It's a little closed off. It's also a bit more extracted. Uh, it's a... Mm -hmm. To me, it's blacker fruit. It's for sure. Fruit. Yeah. For, the acidity is not as... as uh, it's not as acidic. The, the pH is higher, so you're... you're Right there, you're skewing it towards that riper, blacker type uh, style. But that's that's the vintage, definitely. Uh, I think Galoni called the 12 vintage for us racy or something like that. Where it's, you know, it's very opulent for a Dunn mm -hmm. style, but it was a warm, warm mirror. The cannons are a little grippier. They are grippier. So it's it's kind of ironic that you have a quote unripe vintage where the tannins are more silky, right? Right, right, right. right. With but, the but bear in mind this was picked quite a bit later. I mean, it was the end of October. I mean, we were wrapped up this year, but by the time we would have picked the eleventh, right? So seventeen was almost in all in barrel. Hmm. You know, this wine. Come and see me in twenty years. You know? <laughs> exactly. Even though it is a ripe year, it's certainly not. Flabby, you know, like no. drink now. Is, definitely is, is that a, is that a ma matter of it being Hall Mountain? Yeah, that's, I would argue all mountains. I mean, I don't know Spring Mountain well, but that's you know, and, and Pritchard, those are on the the rain shadow side. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, the sunny side over here, the east 
eastern hills and the smaller berries this is a lot of tannins oh this is so much deeper in color the 13. keep in mind now this is two years more recent so the development in bottle sure. is not the same Absolutely. i like to see five years from bottling to start getting bottles Just to start, yeah yeah really i mean you can drink them Sooner, some people call that infanticide. But That's exactly what I call it. That's a term I use regularly when it comes to Burgundy and Cabernet. Between you and, and your listeners, we do have to sell wine that people can try. Well, yeah, and it's a matter of, you know, when do we stop buying wine, men of our age, of the right. wines that are going to outlive us. Oh, oh, my God. So, absolutely, people have literally died on our mailing list. Attrition. Yeah. Not like, oh, I don't want to buy your wines anymore. No, no or I'm past. Not, consciously, people have said to me, I'm not buying any more of your wines. I don't, my grandparents or my grandkids are going to be drinking this, mm -hmm. right? 13 is something special. It's, it's, it's really kind of all the highs of the 11 and the 12 married together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, and it's, it's young. really integrated. It's got that elevation of, of the kind of warmer. Clear? Do you do you find it clean, or do you do you feel any detect any breath in this one? Hmm. Just a smidge. Maybe right? a touch, but only because you brought it up to me and I started looking for it. Mm -hmm. Tannins are there. They're grippy. Mm -hmm. It's uh needs a while to calm those down. I think. You know, so it's funny when I say to people, okay, in thirteen we got three tons an acre versus two. People. Start searching for oh, so the quality is not as good. Uh uh. Between two and the difference between two and three tons makes a big difference for us in the cellar, but on the vine, that's just a, it's it's just the, what the what the year gave you. It's it's not even a cluster count difference. It's a berry weight, right? Or less shot berries, or you know a fuller cluster. It's not like you went and you looked through the vineyard and like oh my god, there's a third more fruit out here. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, well, would be the noticeable. The vine, right? <laughs> right. One of the things that I'm finding with each of the wines, a, a characteristic that's common amongst them, is the, the great, and here's a word that people get flipped out about, yeah. minerality. Mm -hmm. It's there. Mm -hmm. It's there. It's it's stony. It's that, that wet sidewalk. It's... Do you, do you notice overtly oaky characters? Toasty By no means, especially with the amount of time you leave... So 32 months, and, and for your listeners, 100% new barrels. Wow, and it doesn't drink that way at all. You're no. anyone that's afraid of an overly oaked wine. This no. wine does not have that at all. And I've been, own. I mean, uh, this is my responsibility. My dad had given me full run for the barrel decisions. And I have trialed barrels. In other words, I do 32 months, one wine in several barrels. And, mm -hmm. they, and they're racked in and out of that same barrel, no blending. And... Uh, from 04 forward. What do we have left? So we have a 12 a retro Petit Syrah, Howe Mountain, Elevation. There's just about 5% Syrah in here and 5% Zin from Howe Mountain. And like I said earlier, a little Pelourson. Pelourson. Even the French don't know how to say it. They're like, <laughs> I've not heard of this. <laughs> it's a non-noble varietal, but it's... Uh, they're pretty color. Well, Petite's got loads of color. Loads and loads. Yeah. What's really going to be interesting for you about this wine is the, the, the spiciness and the... Uh, yeah, that's the first thing that gets you. It's a you know? totally different type of uh Yeah, the first aromatic. thing that comes up is those kind of baking spices. Yeah. Uh, 
the sweeter baking spices. Yep. This happened to be a pretty uh, open vintage for us. Um, once again, I really like the 11. Uh, even though it's a tough sell on the market, particularly for petite. This 12 is no not racy by any means, but, but the aromatics are really uh, forward on it. This is our current release. The 12 is? Yeah, so wow. done, our current release on done is 14. So if you want to start a wine project and make money, yeah, don't start with petite. No. <laughs> this, this wine is, it's got, it's, I love the texture. It's great texture. It's darker fruit, but the acidity lifts it up. Mm -hmm. It's not, it doesn't get too heavy. And there's this cool kind of cocoa finish. Mm -hmm. I really dig. Mm. Just, it, it's, I, I can't emphasize this enough, but it's not what you would think of as a petite. No. Most people. No, for sure. It's, and so uh, that's what's kind of kicked our, our butts on. And that's why we're trying to go to it. making it hard to sell? Yeah, I mean, the traditional petite Syrah drinker is like, you know, uh, 16% alcohol. Right, there was somewhat, a giant big yeah, right. And this is not that. This no, is no, no. Far more elegant. The acidity is nice and high. I mean, yep. this wine is dying to have food with it. Exactly. I mean, really, it's we're, so pretty. We're pretty stoked we went to New York this year and working with our distributor, Angel Share, and we got the oh, Michelin Star Restaurant to pour this by the glass with the Strong. Right, with it's, a, um, you know, of course, a pork or a short rib. Or so at 35 bucks a bottle, they're probably pouring it by the glass at about 20, 25. <laughs> this one's 45. Okay, the so Howl and the probably Napa's, yeah. 25, 30 yeah. bucks for a glass. Yeah. And these are people that have never had petite in their life. Is it yeah. is it available at retail at all? Or is it, it is. It's all in restaurants. Yeah, and actually you can go uh, direct to uh, to my wife. Operators are standing by. <laughs> www.retrosellers.com. Um and we, we really, it's a hand sell and we, you know, my wife's a sweetheart and she'll talk to you personally and, you know, we offer, uh, we have a case now we're on, that's on sale, 09, 10, 11, and 12, three bottles of each. You that's know, cool. It, it's really cool. And you get to really see vintage characteristics and, uh, and maybe my evolution as a winemaker. Yeah, for right? sure. Um, Learn from, a little something every vintage. From 03 to, you know, 12 right now is a pretty good... Uh, range um i don't have those really old ones for sale but uh, you know it, it honored a place uh if you tried the napa with the howl even though they're made the same very different wines well fruits come in different places so and I, I can't emphasize that source fruit sources are so critical and i would have never known that until i did this my dad knew it all along but he could tell me until his face turns blue <laughs> yeah, yeah whatever yeah, whatever dad yeah um matter of fact He's of the opinion that it's not the age of the vine, it's really where it's grown. And I think that might be convenient to think, but there is definitely something to do with maturity in vines as well. But like I said, that old trailer vineyard, we renamed it Alta Tierra, but uh, we'll see how that evolves over, over time. And uh, it's our best chunk of dirt. And we it's bought terrific. that sucker when it was cheap. Yep. And you can't buy ain't, in now. Ain't nothing that <laughs> now. No, sir. <laughs> Great. Well, Mike Dunn, thanks so much. Uh, the wines you're making and uh, are really special wines. And uh, I encourage people, if you if you don't know Dunn, I mean, you obviously know Dunn, but if you haven't had Dunn, get out and get some. If you're a lover of Napa Cab, this is, this is it for me. And uh, definitely check out Retro, too. Cool wine. 
uh, cool winemaker. Thank you. For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestpoorpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Pour with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Pour with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Pour. This has been The Honest Pour with John Lennart. Music by Kevin McLeod. 